Good afternoon. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. We are in Philippians chapter 2. We've made our way all the way to verse 14. Let's read. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stand forever. So last week we looked at what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We saw that it's God who works in us to will and to work for his own good pleasure. If you remember, we we compared it to a, a chainsaw, such that if you were to go and to cut down some ginormous tree, it would require our effort, but not our power. We're simply too weak. However, the power would be in the chainsaw. That's where the actual power would come from. And so in the same way, we are to live as God has called us to live, And that takes our effort. It takes our effort, but if there's any success, it's not because we have worked powerfully in and of ourselves, but because God has worked powerfully in us. And so it's important that we remember that all of this is in the context of Paul and ultimately God's call for the church to dwell in unity. The last thing we looked at a week ago was that God works in us And the reason he works in us, we we see this, is for his own good pleasure, what pleases God. So now this week, we're going to get a picture of what does not please God, a sin that God does not want to find dwelling in his church. And so what is this sin that's, that's so terrible, so destructive that God is going to point us to in this text? Is it, is it lust or pornography or premarital sex or murder or lying or adultery or abortion or Satan worship? I mean, you know the answer already. We read it, but, but we almost expect something like that to be high on this list. And that's not what we see here in verse 14. We find that this great and terrible sin, which will destroy unity, is grumbling and disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some translations use the words complaining and, and arguing. Uh, All things is certainly a a wide spectrum. It's an all-inclusive statement. So if we're going to not grumble and and not dispute, what does that actually mean? To grumble or to complain is to give expression or to give words to an inward discontentment. Grumbling comes from our view that things should be done just as we desire them to be done. And when we don't allow any room for someone else for the way that they may think or feel or, or perceive a situation. And when that happens, uh, we verbally show our discontentment, and that is grumbling, that is complaining. Or we complain about the way things have played out. It, it rained today, which ruined my plans. I can't change that. But I still feel the need to voice this disapproval out loud to somebody. Because really my way is, is best, and it, it should have gone my way. In fact, any action of another that isn't the way that I would have done it, that's grounds. That's a moment for us to complain. 
and discontentment or, or grumbling like a fire spreads. And that's why it is so easy for us to grumble. It's this community event. Everyone seems to enjoy it unless, of course, you happen to be the object of that grumbling. When we complain about someone or, or something, nine times out of ten, whoever we're talking to jumps in and adds something, and the fire spreads a little more. And so how does complaining help with unity? How is that honoring to our sovereign God who really has provided all that we need? How does complaining fix anything in an uplifting way? See, the, the word translated grumbling here occurs nowhere else in the writings of Paul. All these letters we have of his, nowhere else. But it does show up in the Septuagint. Now, the Old Testament was originally written in mostly Hebrew, but at the time of Christ, there was a, a widely used gr Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word in the Old Testament used to describe Israel's response, though, is, is the one that's used after the Israelites have been wandering in the desert, after God has delivered them from Pharaoh and Egypt. You know, they, they just saw God part the Red Sea, and, and they're on their way to the Promised Land, and, and they complained against Moses. And Moses made clear to them that their complaining really wasn't so much against Moses. It was a complaining against God himself. You can see this in, in Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. See, even in the wilderness, even as they're wandering, God is providing food for them from the sky. And they're grumbling because they're not satisfied with what God has provided them. They can imagine it being better. See, grumbling is almost always against God. It's a statement of discontentment, and it stems from this position of pride that says, I know better than God knows. And we see it worked out in, in many ways. Workers against bosses. Students grumbling about teachers or GTAs. Roommates with each other. Wives against husbands. Husbands against wives. People of the church against leadership or against each other. And so this call to, to not grumble is not in this context, a call to never be discontent. But it's a call to how we respond when we feel this discontentment. Do we offer solutions or do we just offer complaints? For instance, sometimes I, I hear myself or others simply say what's wrong. No, no offer for help. Say you're walking and it's a long ways and you say, you know, my feet hurt. I can't walk anymore. That's a complaint. You're not content with the situation. Your feet do hurt. That's true, right? We tend to think if it's true, say it. But voicing it in this way really offers no solution, and it asks for no solution. Uh, the same info could be communicated in other ways that would be much more helpful. My feet hurt. Do you mind if we, I take off my shoes for a little while? Uh, my feet hurt. Do you mind if we just take a little break? My feet hurt. Can we take a cab the rest of the way? Or will you carry me? Further, how do we respond when our solutions are not followed, when we have ideas and they're not taken. I, I think of, of Jesus in, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, God's 
plan was for him to be crucified on the cross, and Jesus knew this. He, he understood that that was going to mean this separation from God and included pain and included the sin of the world being put on him. And Jesus doesn't complain. He certainly could have. If anyone ever had a right to complain, it's him at that moment. He could have said, God, this is not a good plan. Let's not do this. He could have said, God, it's not fair. Let them die for their own sin. He could have gone to, to Peter and been like, can you believe God's idea? I mean, let them die for their own, right? And Peter would be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Until he realized that would affect him. And then we look in Matthew 26, verse 39, and we, we see how Christ really does respond. He says, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The second time he prays, uh, just a verse later. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In the church, grumbling is always a threat to unity. And this is often seen in what individuals desire. I don't like the music. Why don't they sing more Chris Conley? Or why don't they sing only hymns? Or I don't like songs like that. Uh, it's in the sermons. He preaches too long, or he preaches too short, or Brian is so boring, would he just close his mouth? There's always something that we would do different in a church service. And, and believe it or not, that's, that's true for me as well. I, we have a session, a session of elders who give oversight, and that means that there are things that are done that are not the way that I would have done them. And as frustrating as that can be at times, it's a beautiful form of God-designed accountability that I wouldn't trade for the freedom to do whatever I want. There's moments where I think I would, but I really wouldn't. And so don't confuse this call not to complain as a call to never have ideas. Ideas are, are welcome and, and helpful. And so, you know, even in this context, feel free to suggest songs to sing, but be prepared. There might be a reason we don't sing a song. And I think that's the fear people have whenever ideas come in is, how do we respond when they don't go the way we want? Remember, the point of telling us to do all things without grumbling or disputing is that unity and grumbling are antithesis to each other. Grumbling will destroy unity. It just will. And that means the simple act of grumbling in the body of Christ is a threat against the very thing that Jesus Christ prayed for us in John 17, the high priestly prayer where he goes and he prays for his church and he prays for oneness and he prays for unity. And we need to value unity in the same way that Christ values unity. See, grumbling and complaining is, is a huge issue for us for, for I think, two reasons. First, it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's like when you get a speeding ticket and you were just going six miles over and you just want to tell someone, you know, there are murderers and drug dealers out there. And we have our cops pulling people over for going six miles over. We just think it's not that big of a deal. I'm not the only one who does that, right? But this is where we really need to trust the assessment of the sin that Jesus gives us. And for God, grumbling is a very big deal. Whether we agree or not, that's what he's saying. Second thing, this is the reason it's a big issue, is that it seems like a hopeless battle to us. Reminds me of a story I read recently. In 1973, Nolan Ryan was, was pitching a no-hitter, it's a big deal in baseball, uh, against the Detroit Tigers. And the last battle he faced was this guy by the name of Norm Cash. And after the first pitch, 
the umpire looks over and realizes that Norm Cash is, is holding a table leg and not a baseball bat. It was later revealed that he went back in the clubhouse and actually ripped a table leg off of a table and brought it out there to use as his bat. The ump looked at him, kind of laughed a little bit, but, but told him, you, you can't use that. You have to use a real bat. And, and Cash's response to him was, why not? I'm not going to get a hit anyway. He was so willing to give up at this point. He, he thought that him getting a hit was so impossible that he didn't even bother trying. Of course, he struck out, and that was the end of the game. So it's true that complaining is a difficult sin to battle with. It's like a freshly caught fish. It's, it's slippery because it's always leaving us to question the motives of our hearts when, when we're speaking. And so I'll say this, that while it is difficult, God wouldn't call us to obedience in an area that was impossible. What I mean is put down the table leg and come to bat with a baseball bat. Put effort into it and, and look to God to give the victory. To help us really understand how serious the sin of grumbling or complaining is, I want to give you four dangers of grumbling. First, grumbling is often the beginning of, of withdrawal from fellowship. I want it this way and it isn't this way. If we don't get our way, then, then we won't participate. It's that feeling of, I'll just walk away from this. Too often in the church, that's where it begins, with simple grumbling. And before you know it, individuals and families have, have left and gone completely out of fellowship because things don't go the way they want. Second, grumbling destroys the reputation and the effectiveness of those grumbled against. It, it doesn't seek to improve them uh, or to help someone grow in grace. or It's just getting this contentment off our chest. And the reality is we care more about our own reputations than we do anyone else's reputation. I think that's, that's why we can't stand it when people grumble about us. None of you would say, no, I think it's great when people complain about me. It hurts deeply. Yet we are all such sinners that we seem to have no problem complaining about other people. And the third danger of grumbling is that it darkens the name of Christ. People often learn who Jesus is through their interaction with Christians. Uh, when they listen to us complain against each other, what does that say about our satisfaction in all that Jesus Christ is for us? If people, we are told in, in the word of God, are to know that we are Christians by the way we have love for one another, what are they going to learn by our complaining against each other? And the fourth danger of grumbling is it, it fuels our pride. We're so impressed with ourselves for not committing the sin that that person committed. It's like this this beast. You almost try imagining this, this grumbling as a, a beast with an unquenchable appetite for more complaining. You ever know someone with a tendency to just complain about everything? Someone you might call a, a malcontent. It's, it's exhausting to interact with them. You fix one thing and they find something else to complain about. It's an endless series of discontentment. Are, are you hungry? Or, okay, well, here's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for you. Oh, you're allergic to peanut butter. I'm sorry, what would you like? Here's a salad. What kind of salad? Here is your Caesar salad you asked for. Not enough croutons. Of course. I I'm sorry, here's the whole box of croutons. Put as many as you want on there. Okay, you don't like that brand of croutons. I don't know, maybe starve to death? And I realize I'm complaining about this makeup person right now, right? <laughs> and so grumbling... It can be complaining to the person it's about, but most often it's about 
someone who isn't involved in the conversation at all. We, we pretend to have right motives. We need to vent or, or really just flesh out our thoughts or we need advice and that's the way we word it. And, and maybe your motives are pure. I won't even claim to know your motives in this. But I, I know my heart and I know that's not usually my motivation. Usually I'm looking for support. I'm looking for someone to agree with me. I'm thinking this person is un- unreasonable and their eyes are, ideas are terrible and that they should have done something completely different and, and my ideas are way better and, and well, I'm glad that's off my chest. And those aren't right motives. Okay, so the first thing we need to recognize is the grumbling in ourselves. It's, it's like we're grumbleaholics. Uh, we need to go to, to Grumblers Anonymous. Hi, my name is Brian Huff, and I've been a grumbler most of my life. And at this moment, I have been grumble-free for two hours. Our battle against grumbling will be an ongoing battle, day by day, moment by moment, disappointment after disappointment. And we spent a, a large portion of our, our time looking at Um, Just this one aspect of the text. I want to look at what comes next, and then we'll come back to that a bit. But verse 15 continues, and it says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so we're to not grumble and not dispute. And the reason given here is that if we don't, we will be blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent is is a phrase, uh, and this phrase, without blemish here, do not mean sinless. I know we tend to want to go there with that. Only Christ is sinless. Those statements here mean that when we don't grumble and we do dwell in unity, we leave those outside the faith no credible reason to to condemn Christianity. We learn here that, that God cares for his glory and we don't glorify him when we live in disunity with each other. We also learn that our unity is part of his plan for this crooked and twisted generation. He longs for us to stand out because of our love and our unity for each other. 1 Corinthians 1.10 makes this same call to us. It reads, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Our complaints against each other will be a hindrance to our mission, to our displaying the truth of the gospel to a world who desperately needs to hear it. Verse 15 ends with these words, Among whom you shine as lights in the world. To make this as simple as possible, it means when you are not grumbling, you are like a light. If you're the only one in your house or your work group or some school group or team or whatever it might be, and you're not grumbling, you're going to stand out because almost everyone on the planet grumbles, grumbles, grumbles. Now, we tend to think in digital terms. I can go back there and hit the switch and the light goes, goes on or off. We tend to think of success or failure. And that can be good in some things. Your, your justification is a digital term. Jesus saves you by grace through faith. Your standing moves from condemned to forgiven. That's not a partial thing. You are never three quarters of the way saved. That's not possible. It's done and complete because Jesus Christ has accomplished it. 
And so while justification is digital, sanctification is analog. Sanctification is that process by which our actual lives conform more and more to the word of God. Consider light switches again. Your, your justification is the flip switch on. And it can't go off. Sanctification, however, is, is like a dimmer switch. Uh, there are degrees of light. You know those knobs you can turn. And in a completely dark room, turning it even slightly provides noticeable light. The, the more the knob is turned, the more light we see. And our lives are like that. Christ is working in us, making us more like him. Sometimes so slowly that you barely notice the light go up. You barely notice the change. And, and other times it's quickly. Whether fast or slow, though, we have reason to rejoice in the growth that God is producing in us. And so while we, we may not find perfect obedience, we, we continue the battle because God is, is changing us. It's like what we see in Colossians 1.29. There, Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so we battle against grumbling because God is powerfully at work in us. Matthew 5.16 says something similar. Matthew 5.16 reads, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we are complaining and grumbling, we don't stand out. We blend in. And the gospel is not seen or heard in the way that we interact with people. And so understand the, the bigger picture in our unity. We, we should work towards unity, understand that doing so is necessary for us to fulfill our calling of being light in a dark world. Verse 16 then starts by showing that when we are lights in the world, it is because we are holding fast to the word of life. That's because the word of God constantly recalibrates our thinking. It shows us that whatever we are disgruntled about really isn't that big of a deal. We think it is in the moment, or we wouldn't bother grumbling about it, but, but it isn't. And that calibration is something we need. That's why we, we preach the Word of God every week. That's why we encourage you to soak up the Word of God during the week. Uh, John Calvin points out that this, this phrase, holding fast to the Word of life, is our, our holding up the gospel and looking to it as our hope. In the last portion of verse 16, we see Paul looking to his own ministry, his ministry to the Philippians. He wants to see them grow in faith. And he says, the reason is this, so that at the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I think sometimes we forget Paul's human. He has no idea how things are going to go for him and for the Philippians after he leaves, after his death. Uh, but he's, he's poured into them. He's, he wants to see them grow. He wants to see them flourish in their faith. Uh, just consider, any time in your life you've, you've poured into another person, spending time and, and prayer and, and money just caring for them, how discouraging is it to look later and, and see, you know, it didn't make any difference. Not at all. Uh, that's, that's disappointing because... You care about them. You, you want to see them grow and be wise and find joy and live for the glory of God. You want to see these changes made, and that's why you put the effort forth. That's, that's Paul here. He, he wants for them to actually grow in their faith, not to be just like the world. 
In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul tells us that the grace of God in his life was not in vain, but was useful. There he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Let me put it this way. I don't want any of us to get to the end of our lives and realize that the gospel didn't mean much to us, that it was simply words. That's the desire here. Now the last two verses work off an understanding of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, We'll read it again, verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. See, animals were were sacrificed to God in the Old Testament. It, It wasn't a perfect model, but it was a model of what Christ was going to do for us when he was going to become the ultimate sacrifice once for all. And so these animals would be killed, placed on an altar, and burned. It sounds weird to our culture. It made sense to them. These animals were the main sacrifice. There were also these other sacrifices called drink offerings. Uh, and you'd have this fire going, and the drink offering was a liquid that was simply poured on top of the other offering. It would go up in smoke. Uh, an aroma would come from it. It was there one minute and gone the next moment. And, and it was a sacrifice, but it wasn't as big a deal as the other one. And In this case, Paul is using, this is a reference looking at his own death. He said early in this book that their continued obedience, their steadfastness and persecution was was seen like an offering. He's saying that his life is is just on top of that, a a mere drink offering that goes up in smoke, quickly gone, but still an offering. And And he may be put to death soon for his faith. And he wants them to rejoice with him if this happens. I know it's strange sounding, but you remember Paul earlier, chapter 1, he says that phrase, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's own death is, is actually something he's, he's looking forward to. And like I said, I know that sounds strange, but, but that's the faith Paul had. And we need to understand that as Christians, that once our life on earth comes to an end, there is something greater. There really is. And truly believing this is one of those life-changing realities. Believing in eternity actually helps us to resist the sin of grumbling. When we know that the God, what the gospel has accomplished for us, for all of eternity, I think we're less inclined to be crushed by temporary worldly discontentment. And singing a song of worship you don't like, Is it really that big of a deal when you know that you'll be singing praises to God for all of eternity? Is someone's less than perfect decision really worth dimming the light we shine in the world? Is getting frustrations just off our chest really worth what it costs the reputation of our Savior who died on the cross for us? And all the terrible decisions we've made ourselves. I'll finish by saying this. My prayer for us is that we would be an attractive church. Not because we have an impressive building or because we have specialized program for everything you could possibly want or because my preaching is better than Tim Keller. It never will be. My prayer is that we would be an attractive church in the way that our text speaks of here. That we would do all things without grumbling and actually love each other and thus shine as lights in the world. 
When you bring a friend with you to anything church-related, do you want them to think these people are just as whiny and just as self-centered and just as selfish as everyone else I've ever met in my life? I don't think so. If you're anything like me, you, you want to see them be welcomed, cared for, ask genuine questions about themselves, to be treated in a way that they haven't been treated in the world. Not as some sort of sales tactic. We don't want that. And that's not why I tell you that. But because that's the kind of people God is making us into. Gospel people. That's the shining we're talking about. And my hope is that God would be glorified as we know that any good that we do as believers, any good that's accomplished in our life is a result of God working in us. And before we close, I'll say, you guys have done a phenomenal job. I mean, I mentioned this, and I don't want you to feel like I'm saying... You know, we're really bad at this. Let's start being good. But this is something you've done wonderful. Continue. Continue to do it wonderful. Um, I want to close just by reading 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. It reads this. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace.